Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mike Martoccio, and I'm coming to you from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm here with Nicholas Scott Baker. Nick is an associate professor of early modern European and Mediterranean history at Macquarie University in beautiful, warm Sydney, Australia, and he's also the author of a fabulous new book, I Had the Opportunity to Read called In Fortune's Theater, Financial Risk, and the Future in Renaissance Italy, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. This innovative cultural history of financial risk-taking in Renaissance Italy argues that a new concept of the future as unknown and unknowable emerged in Italian society between the mid-15th and mid-16th centuries exploring the rich interchanges between mercantile and intellectual cultures underpinning this development in four major cities, Florence, Genoa, Venice, and Milan. Baker examines how merchants and gamblers, the futurologists of the pre-modern world, understood and experienced their own risk-taking and that of others. Drawing on extensive archival research, this study demonstrates that while the Renaissance did not create the modern sense of time, it constructed the foundations on which it could develop. The new concepts of the past and the future that developed in the Renaissance provided the pattern for the later construction of a single narrative beginning in classical antiquity, stretching to the now. This book thus makes an important contribution toward laying bare the historical contingency of a sense of time that continues to structure our world in profound ways. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm well, Marty. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation to, to join. It's a pleasure to, to be here uh, to talk about the book. Yeah. So uh, obviously, uh, you know, I love the book. Everyone should uh, go out and buy it uh, immediately right now. It makes for a great uh, Christmas or, or uh, end of year gift. But um, maybe to get us started Tell us about the origins of this book. What uh, what spurred your interest in the history of the future? Right, where we study the past, but you're interested in the history of the future. So tell us about the uh, what spurred this. Uh, yeah, look, it it took a um, it actually it it took a while for me to put it all together. Um, I was uh, I was in the the US in in 2007 08. Um, Finishing finishing grad school and and then uh, and then I was in a visiting assistant professor position, uh, so I you know I, I sort of got to witness firsthand the the evolving subprime mortgage crisis and uh, and you know everything that that followed on from that uh, in in the middle of of twenty oh eight, and so and and I sort of I remember sort of watching all of that with a kind of a, a uh, a fascinated horror at how it had all uh, occurred, how, how sort of 
risk systems had got so out of uh, so out of balance. So I, you know, I mean it, that, and that sort of formed formed a background. And then, I mean, to be honest, I you know, I was I was sort of interested. You know, I mean, that was kind of I, I was fascinated with how you know the the Great Recession or the the, the GFC or whatever whatever we want to call it uh, was. Um, affecting my life how it was affecting everybody's lives but that 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 sort of was was in the background and i was sort of stumbling around trying to find find a new topic you know yeah right right well my dissertation and and uh and was, was sort of progressing through the book on that and i was i was just sort of reading um reading stuff uh randomly in the archive to a certain extent um and of course martin this is where you enter the story Oh, I didn't even realize. I hadn't even expected this. This is great. <laughs> and uh, so I was, yeah, I was, um, I was just reading. I was reading letters uh, in the, the archive in the state archive in Florence one day. Letters from a, an agent of the, the uh, Medici Duke of Florence, who was at the vice um, vice regal court in Naples. Uh, and in one particular letter, this agent devoted a great deal of length to talking about the gambling that was happening in the court uh and um you know who was winning who was losing how much you know what you know and and you know all the sort of details uh and it was uh, it was that moment one of those moments in the archive where it was just like i thought i don't understand what's going on it's like i don't i don't understand why he's talking so much uh, about gambling and, and you know this is then you maybe you remember marty i we actually spoke but we went for a drink <laughs> that, that, that <laughs> and, and had a and i remember talking to you about this um so i initially thought i was going to you know i was going to be writing uh, the history of gambling in renaissance italy um but then i realized uh, believe it or not gambling is actually less interesting um seems i think because of the, the nature of the archival sources um but I just sort of gradually realized there was a bigger question. Um, and that question was about how Italians thought about uh, the future uh, and how they thought about risk. And this sort of develops out of how, you know, it, Renaissance Italy, or late medieval and Renaissance Italy, um, has a, you know, has a, a significant place in, in traditional. Uh, Eurocentric histories of capitalism. You know, it's one of the, the sort of the key locations in which modern European capitalism is is understood to have developed, and and so how modern attitudes towards financial risk uh, developed. So I, I sort of started putting that together, and that's it. It, it. it was a it was a very gradual evolution. I got um, probably. Two or three years before I sort of had a coherent sense of of, of what I was doing. <laughs> so there's a lesson there for you know for I think for for people you know for other scholars perhaps you know don't worry but, it takes you a long time to work out what you're trying to do. Okay, yeah, I, I well I I feel like I uh, you know being there uh, such an inspiration for the book. I feel like I should be getting royalties from it. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I, I mean, it's it is uh, like I said, it's a wonderful book, and I, I think you know most people who who would listen to this interview probably have a sense of the Italian Renaissance being related to new ways, not so much about thinking about the future, right? But that the Renaissance is all about thinking about the past, right? That the, the past is somehow 
that the Greco-Roman past is somehow newly important in the Renaissance. Um, so I, I guess a question I have is, just before we kind of get into the meat of the book, how did have people, scholars in the past, thought about what how people in the Renaissance thought about the future, right? It kind of how scholars approached this this question, this problem that you're that you ask. How how do people in the Renaissance, how do Renaissance Italians think about the future? How have scholars approached that before? And so then, what's kind of novel about this book? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, I mean. And what's I think what is what is what the contribution that the book makes is uh, that my book makes is uh, that it's the like the the first systematic and and coherent examination of how Italians thought about the future um, in the period of the Renaissance in, in the period that, that we that we call the Renaissance. Um, it certainly there are there are scholars who have um, have looked at this uh, question before, and, and in particular, um, art historians. There's, there, there are several works uh, by art historians who consider this. Um, uh, Simona Cohen, uh, who's at the University of uh, Tel Aviv, um, has published a wonderful book about time, about images of time uh, in Italy. And so there's there's a section uh, that where well, she, she several talks about um uh, and she doesn't exactly talk about the future, but she she's talking about in the books that be uh are generative of ideas about the future. Um and Jason Kelly um who wrote a, a great dissertation on uh, prediction and um and the future in Northern European art that, that hasn't been that hasn't been published yet. I mean she's published Bible books but she isn't published the dissertation uh, as a whole, um, and of course, sitting sitting behind all of that, um, there are you know sort of the, the big sort of you know conceptual historians of time, Reinhardt, Casalic, um, who who sort of you who does you know his his idea of um, the future is that you know there there isn't really a sense of of um, the unknown future in in Europe until um, until uh, the sort of modernity until the eighteenth century. Uh, he does, you know, he talks a little about about Renaissance Italy, but he like it's sort of this transitional period, but it's still largely part of this. Um, what he argues with this sort of static medieval concept of of temporality um so there's there's some work by some by some scholars but but most of that work is is really on it um most of the work that really engages with the idea of the future is uh work by art historians that i mean and there is a there's a lot of work of course on on financial risk taking uh by economic historians um of all sorts of stripes um, but no, no one study had sort of tried to um, to put the story, put the narrative together as as a whole, and 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 uh, try to understand sort of holistically how ideas about the future had had developed, not only in cultural aspects like art, but also in in the lived experience of of commerce and of gambling. Just of, of every the sort of 
probabilistic assessments of, of everyday life that you know we we all make sort of probabilistic assessments um, all the time every day, and so you know I was trying to sort of capture that level, but also uh, put it together with um, with the sort of the, the, the cultural level of art and literature as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you you kind of hit because the 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 book really is divided between you have the kind of everydayness of this, right? And then you also look at, at high art and uh, seemingly every thinker who anyone has ever heard of in the Renaissance is talking about this. Um, so it really, I mean, it just, the, the amount of sources that you look at is amazing. It's really good. Uh, yeah. And you know, you, you start the book and just to, just to kind of get into it a bit, you, you start the book, I think a really clever way. You look at two groups of people who, um, who basically are making a living in the middle of the 16th century out of their knowledge of this kind of new knowledge that they have about the uncertain future, which are, um, gamblers and merchants. So let's maybe take a minute and kind of start with, with those two groups. Uh, actually, let's start with the first group specifically, uh, gamblers. Can you tell uh, listeners just how prevalent was gambling uh, in the Renaissance? It seems like it's happening all the times. And what sort of games are people playing and what it, there's more to gambling than just the money on the table, you argue. So maybe get into that a bit. Um. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Gambling. It does. It does feel like gambling is uh, is everywhere. Gambling uh, seems to be sort of ubiquitous uh, and and endemic. Uh, in... I mean, they're gambling on the than the gender of children. I mean, this is like gender reveal parties up to a yeah. different level, right? I mean, it's really yeah. uh, gambling on everything. <laughs> yeah. 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 They pretty much. You, you sort of get the sense that that um, Italians in the fifteenth and sixteenth century would, would bet on just about anything. As you said, yeah, like the, the sex of of, the, of an unborn child, oh, the the death of a prince, which of course is a really dangerous, potentially dangerous thing to mm. to gamble from. <laughs> yeah, um, the identity of the next cult that was like a huge. There's an industrial complex about the bend on on who the, the next pope would be, uh, and and everybody uh, everybody gambles. Men gamble, women gamble. Um, relatively poor people gamble, wealthy people gamble. Uh and and so it's it's not just that it's um pervasive, but it it, it crosses uh gender lines, it crosses it crosses across uh, social starving when we come across about uh, yeah, yeah, in the in the arts you come across poor widows who are being flinched in that mm-hmm. Uh, you you come across you come across women who are fascinatingly Ven- Venice and plus specific several women who seem to be sort of entrepreneurs of gambling who are sort of running gambling gambling schools, uh, not teaching gambling but you know places for for people to go and gamble, uh, and then you know as I you know the, the sort of the starting point of all of this the the, the gambling side of the vast really will court in in Naples you have um, princes and and members of the nobility. Uh, gambling in extraordinary sums, like lifetime is of worth of work for for ordinary uh, for ordinary people. Um, so so I mean, so there's betting going on, like people people bet on on all sorts of things. Um, they also do uh, do play games. On, until the 15th century, the most common game is is a dice game. 
uh, in which an Italian is called Zara, which is is played the three dice, and you, you basically you you um you're depending on the the likelihood of a number being rolled. So of course that means the really low and really high numbers, three, four, seventeen, and eighteen, uh, which you know you can only there's only one possible roll to roll those numbers. That means they're much higher state. It's the it's the numbers in the middle which are a, which are a safer bet. Um, and because it's uh, sort of it's slightly tangent, I guess, but because this game is so prevalent, this is the sort of game that you see uh, when you see images of the crucifixion and the soldiers gamble. Yes, you do. You also mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's what they that's what they that's what they're playing. Yeah, Dante mentions it uh, because it's so common. Um, it, you get this. There's a ready-made body of data for for early sort of mathematical forays into. Uh, you know, the early forays into mathematical probability uh, by people like Girolamo Cardano and, and Galileo. And, yeah, that's that's what they base their, their initial thinking on because that the sort of obvious body of data because people play the third bang. Um, from the 15th century, then fine cards start to appear in Italy. Um, they, they, the history is a little obscure, but it seems fairly certain they're introduced um, by the Mediterranean from, from somewhere in the Islamic world. Um, that uh, this fine bats then on the into into Europe, uh, and so then we start to get proto forms of games like that we still play today, like Poker Black White. Now they various forms of these, uh, and this is sort of much a much more genteel and sociable form of gambling. You're, you know, dice fans can be piled anywhere on the street. Here's piled games with a little more complex. Um, they also. <clears throat> they also bet on table games like chess and backgammon. Well, like, um, so, uh, Cardano is, is like this inveterate. He's a physician and he's a bit of a polymath, but he's also a, a compulsive gambler. He, he once says you tell the story of their health and sort of made a living betting on games of chess for that one stage, uh, in his life. Uh, and yeah, as you, as you said in your question, it's not, um, it's, it's not just about money. There are all sorts of um, stakes of sort of uh, face and honor and and yes, yes, involved. That was what was so interesting in uh, in the book is it's it's not about the money. That there's so much more about this. Yeah, and I mean, I do think it it sort of it depends. It, it, it does sort of depend on on who you on who you are. I mean, I think at a certain level, yeah, it's um, it's it's so it is about sort of honor and face and. And, and and social status at every level, and of course, but the poor people gambling, um, there's you know the financial loss, the financial stakes are higher. Um, so you know for them, it, I think it is a little more about the money. Um, and uh, but yeah, for you know people, once we start leading up the social status, then it really it, it's not about the money at all. It's about more. Well, constructing an appropriate self-control persona as um as someone who is indifferent to financial loss and, and doesn't care if they lose hmm. yeah uh, it's uh i you know in in that i think it's in that chapter where you're talking about different types of uh th- these different types of games that people are playing that i i have to say one of the, <laughs> the most fascinating sources, one of the most fun sources that you looked at uh which was this this really funny sounding um 
text by the satirist Pietro Arantino, Le Carte Parlanti, the talking cards uh, from 1543. Uh, tell us just, you know, just in a, a, a minute or two, just about that source, because it looked, it just looked like it was so much fun to read and find and, and talk about, because it's, right, it's about talking, it's about playing cards that are giving, that are kind of mi- making an argument. Well, you, you describe it, look, yeah. <laughs> Um, you 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 know it better than I do. So yeah yeah look yeah it was a, it was a it was really fun to to leave out and and to work with yeah so the, yeah it's this text about the carte palati the the, the talking cards and and so the conceit of the text is that Ben's it features a um it's a dialogue uh, and it's so it's a dialogue between an an actual historical person on a a, a known a, a sort of well known card maker. Um, in the text is Francesco Padovano. Uh, so it's a dialogue between him and, and a set of cards that suddenly sort of becomes sentient and, and animated <laughs> and has a conversation. Kind of like, well, they talk about the history of cards and they, they talk about, and they talk about um, you know, whether, whether gambling was bad and then, you know, and, that, and, and it sort of then sweeps through all these, you know, they talk about, you know, the, the, the Pope and they talk about all these Italian princes and rulers and their attitude and how they are um, gambling. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And the real challenge, I think, with using that was, was not getting too carried away. I think you, you feel like you could just write so much on that. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier drafts, I had, I had, you know, would sort of lard it with all these preferences and it did not like, I've got to pull pull some of this out. I think one of the things that I lost was was actually was my favorite story that he tells is about a man who's who's gambling and having lost all his money, like he stakes a tooth on his next bet. And and the, the guy he's playing with, you know, takes accepts the bet. Uh and so the 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 first guy loses the tooth and the winner insists on collecting it. So so they go off to the bar to search it and uh and um, but the winner, the winner's just like, why, why, I want my tooth. And so the, the loser is like, oh, well, actually, this tooth's rotten. Didn't pull this one out. <laughs> so the barber surgeon died. So the moral, you know, the moral, of course, is that, that the winner has lost all sense of perspective and he's just driven by avarice and he can't, he's just like, oh, I've got to have the tooth. I want the tooth. I want the tooth. And so the real winner, you know, the winner is the, he's the loser, yeah, because he gets a tooth for free. Um, yeah, because of course the barber's like, well, I'm not pulling it out unless you pay me. So the, the winner pays him to pull out. <laughs> Man, what's, great. what's really fascinating is about like it's it's like it's this this deeply satirical and it has some sort of outrageous stories, but its central attitude toward gambling is is like the same as sort of serious works like Castiglione's Book of the Courtier. It's you know, what matters is self control and being disinterested in the art. Like that, that tooth story sort of encapsulates, you know, that that's this guy's a bad, he's a bad gambler because he, the, the guy who insists on collecting the tooth is a bad gambler because he, he he's lost all sense of perspective. Uh, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. I just had, I just had to control how much I used. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's great. Yeah. Um, the, so that, the, those, are the, that's the first two chapters, right? Are the, are on gambling. Um, and then you move to that's the sort of the first group of these what you call the experts in in futurity these these people who are gamblers and merchants. So let's if we could take a couple of minutes and talk about uh, the second group. So so merchants, um, you know, specifically in chapter four, you kind of dive deeply into 
a source that I've used and a lot of other people have used, but um, are really, really rich, which are uh, merchant correspondence. Uh, so I wonder if you can kind of take us through the different types of terms that that merchants would use to describe the future. So there, there are, you know, there's fortuna, there's kind of fortune, but then there's ventura, occasione, all these different rischio, all these different terms that are related to the future. So maybe kind of parse those, you, know, you don't have to parse every one of those because it's, it's a lot, um, but just the, how that correspondence sort of sounds and, and what it was like to use those kind of sources. Um, yeah, I, I mean, as you said, as as you said yourself, yeah, merchant uh, merchant correspondence is, is kind of fat. I I find it fascinating. I mean, some some of it's just dull, but but it's some it's also just just fascinating. And like it's but there's such rich sources. Um, and yeah, so I sort of I, I became interested in that that you know merchants had this. Um, I, I realized merchants had this really. Um, uh, complex vocabulary of, of talking about time. Obviously, merchants are constantly thinking about time in terms of uh, long distance trade. Long distance commerce is is all about you know on uh, arbitrage, basically. You know, buy buy something one place low and and hopefully sell it somewhere else at a higher price. But there's there's the, there's always a time factor involved. Uh, you know, to ship the goods, particularly in the 16th century era. Rodell um, talks about you know the, 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 the geography is is the the enemy because it's it's just it takes so long for the things to be moored. Um, so yeah, so they have this this, this sort of a, a multiple uh, vocabulary. Um, they they think about fortuna, obviously, and this is this is like the the heart of the book itself is this idea of the way that that fortuna becomes this this figure of the the unknown and unknowable quality of the future. Um, but what interested me in particular is actually that mer- it's not a word that merchants actually use very much, um, except sometimes to to refer to storms at sea. It has, also has this old, this old and negative being a storm at sea, and you occasionally saw a new wisdom being at sense. Um, what the, the word that seemed uh, more common in merchant correspondence was, was Bengura, um, which in, in some ways is, is uh, sort of a, a synonym thing and will appear in Italian dictionaries as being sort of a synonym but for Fortuna. Um, but in mercantile correspondence in the 16th century, it, it, it seems to refer um, to to a speculative, but hopefully it's used in the sense of this is this is a speculative, but but hopefully profitable venture. Right, it's not yes. Fortuna because I was I always put the two together in my head, and, and as I was reading a book, I was like, oh, th- these are these are actually different concepts; these are different terms, right? Yeah, yeah, it was certainly certainly within um, within the mercantile, but yeah, the way merchants talk about it, yeah, they they clearly distinguish between the terms. It, it, uh, Ventura is something something that's so it's it's risky. There's there's a risk to it. It's speculative, um, but because it's got the chance of profit, you, you should you should grab a hold of it and and you should do it. You know they talk about you know I'll I'll look for something with, with you know with with more of fruit. I'll look I'll look for the you know I'll invest the funds in what 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 promises the best in fruit. Um, they then they they talk about um occasione um which which has a has a sort of a similar sense of being a, a um a financial opportunity. Um, uh, but it's, 
in the way that merchants, in sort of the way that they sort of pass this, the way that they use this, you know, occasione uh, seems to refer to something that that's purely uh, sort of uh, material and, and contained in the human world. So, so an occasione might be really well priced wool or, or or coral or some something like that. Whereas there's a sense, and you see this in the letters, there's a sense that, that, that Ventura, that sort of opportunity of Ventura might be something that's sent by God. There's often this a common phrase is, hopefully God will send Ventura. Um, whereas God never seems to send a cousin on it. That's, that's something that that. That's just something that is there in the world uh, to be to be seeds. Um, so then, you know, Akaziana and Ventura, like, you know, they're sort of a bit positive, potentially profitable, still risky, but speculative, density, um, all of the aspects of the fact that the future is unknown, that it's the space in which, uh, this time in which you might be able to make money. Um, and, and riskio is risk is, is the negative aspect of all that, you know, refers to, to the potential sort of unknown hazards of, of any commercial venture, um, Pirates, um, bad weather, that a market just collapsing before you, you know before the goods get there. So you know, be, be lose you lose out, or or a market being flooded with you know there's there's too much oil, dollar oil in the market. So you or you can't sell it for the price that you're hoping for. So so you know all of that's that's all of these sort of inherent um, risks of any sort of commercial venture. Uh, capture them in this, this, this notion of, of, of riskier. Wow. So, yeah, this this sort of multivalent um, vocabulary that, that, that they're using it in very particular ways to to think about the fact that you know that, that all of their all of their business ventures largely are based on time, whether it's shipping goods or whether it's speculating on currency exchanges or lending money. It's it's all. Well, there's a time component to all that. So merchants are constantly thinking about the future. Hey, I, I want to just, you you mentioned a, a little bit there the role of faith that, that I, one of the important, one of the important things that you do in the book is you argue, and I think very, very convincingly, that it's not as if this new concept of the future replaces the old one. It's that they it kind of overlaps with it and it exists at the same time. Um, and you, you said there where you were talking that there's still sort of a role for God here in, in Ventura, like God, God grant us Ventura. So where is, faith is all over these correspondence, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're very, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, and that's, I think that's one of the things that makes mercantile correspondence uh, so fascinating because on, on the one level there, these, you know, hard-headed, Calculating um, individuals, dude. Um, we it, um, we could easily fool ourselves into thinking, uh, sort of have a, a sort of a, a, a you know a twentieth, twenty first century modern take on on the world. But they're but they're also you know they live in a world of faith, uh, and uh, and and faith is um saturates their lives and saturates saturates uh their correspondence. Yeah, the the ultimate um the the ultimate and the best investment that any Italian merchant, any Christian Italian merchant can make in this period is is their faith in God. So that's all all account books open 
with an invitation to the divine to to you know to bless whatever the entropy recorded is. Uh, so th- there's a, the, yeah, there's this real sense that okay, we can we can take out maritime insurance, and that's going to mitigate against some of some of the risk. But ultimately, it's it's all in God's hands. And I think, to, I mean, for, for for many of us, I think that there's that it seems almost contradictory, or it seems like they're they're holding two contradictories in their two contradictory ideas in their in their heads at once, but. Uh, they, they, you know, they're obviously very comfortable with this. They don't have a problem yet with moving between more than one vision of the future. The future can be uh, unknown and unknowable, but also ultimately determined by by God, right? At the right. same time, um, no, it's so it's that's one of that. I mean, I really, really like that about it. That it, it just allowed for so many different possibilities and so much nuance, which um, which was just such a it's just so refreshing. I really, I really like that. Um, that's that sort of covers you know, gamblers and merchants kind of cover the the first half, right? But then the second half, you you kind of and I should say that the gamblers and merchants in the middle of the 16th century. So in the second half of the book, you sort of rewind the clock and take us back to how this new notion of the future as unknown time yet to come became established and beginning in. The middle of the century before, in the middle of the fifteenth century. Um, so, sort of walk us through that change over time. How did this new idea of the future? This is a big question, but uh, it's really what the second half of the whole book is about. So, you know, feel free to kind of break it up. Um, how did this new idea of the future actually kind of come about? And uh, and it's up to you. How much, we can talk about the figure of Fortuna, because um, obviously Fortuna plays this really essential role in that. Um, so. Uh, Right, it, it's a big question, but uh, see, see how you can. Handle it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. yeah, and, and actually, here I, I would like to acknowledge uh, one of the one of the anonymous readers for for, for Cambridge, who, uh on a on the sort of the first submission um, said, you know, had lots of lovely things to say about it, but also said, you know, you should think about you should think about reversing the order of the book because it, it, it originally was just like a traditional chronological narrative. And, and the reader said, "You should think about reversing the reversing the order." And it, they had a particular suggestion. I didn't quite do what they suggested, but it, I think it, it certainly made made for a better book. So I'm very I'm yeah. very grateful yeah. for that. I mean, it's great because you sort of you dropped right in the middle of it, right? You mean really these people know what they're doing, and they these gamblers and these merchants, and then you get to chapter five, and suddenly you're like, "Oh, okay. Here, here we're gonna." We're going to wind the clock back. We're going to understand how this world was created, actually, right? Which I th- I, it worked for me, at least. So yeah, uh, you should thank the reviewer. You should thank the reviewer. It was, uh, yeah, it worked. It worked. Um, yeah. So, so how this how this change uh, comes about? So, so yeah, if we if we if we take it back, and you know, and I think in the, in chapter five, I'd sort of take it back um, to to like that the, the late the late fourteenth century, and 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 so. You know, black period when you know it's like, well, is it the late Middle Ages or is it the early Renaissance? Yeah, that, that and without going into that. But so, I, I, what I what I argue is that it, it, at that point in time, late fourteenth, early fifteenth century, um, there there are sort of two ways that um, uh, that Italians, uh, Christian Italians, are, are thinking about the future, uh, and and they're thinking about it in terms of providence, in terms of so this this I this um. Which which aligns with with 
the, the teaching of the church, which is that we know what the future is, and and so we 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 know where we're where we're all going. That's what that's what the future holds. Um, but then, of course, there's always the the, the problem of, of of sort of contingency because you know they, you know these aren't people in the past aren't stupid or foolish, and and they know that you know sort sort of seemingly random things happen. So as well as proponents then, um, Italian fishing Italians think about uh, the future in terms of uh, fortuna, um, which of course they they are they're borrowing the, the, the sort of the figure of fortuna um, from the ancient Romans, the the the, the, uh, the, the Roman deity uh, of of uh, fortuna. Uh, so I mean, if you have on the one hand, you have this. Um, this providential vision of the future of okay, we we know what the end of time is. We know where we're going. We're moving towards that. We know what the future is. Um, but then there's also the, this this figure of uh, Fortuna who who captures then the sort of the, the instability and the uncertainty of, of everyday life. Uh, and until uh really the, the you know moving through the, the late fourteenth into the fifteenth century throughout that period um the way that the figure of fortuna is is used and imagined is is uh, as a moral force and and so fortuna is there to remind humanity um that what matters is actually the providential vision of the future okay that, that what the, if you're going to think about the future you should be concerned about um you know your, you know, what's going to happen to you after you die, and you should be concerned about eternity. Um, and this is why, then, in this sort of that in the, the medieval, uh, early uh, Renaissance period, the strongest association with fortune is, is is the wheel of fortune. In fact, this this image of you know of of this this regal woman turning a wheel, uh, which is a, you know that that whole image of the wheel of fortune is about the fact that. That all worldly goods, all your status, all your power, all your wealth, um, will inevitably be lost. Okay, because the wheel is going to turn. You're going to you're going to fall down to the bottom and be crushed. Um, and so you should not worry about about those things. You should you should worry about you know eternity. You should, you should worry about the, the providential future. Uh, and then this this goes back, um, you know, centuries to to Boethius, and sort of, I think I would suggest is one of the first um, to people to sort of put this Christian moral force over over the figure of Fortuna. So so when when Petrarch, for example, uh, writes about Fortuna in the late 14th century, this this is what he's thinking about. He's thinking about this moral force um that is meant to guide humanity back to the right way of thinking which is don't worry about you know tomorrow don't worry about you know whether you're going to make money just worry about what's going to happen to your soul that's that's the future that you need to be concerned about um but so so i um so i argue uh that that around the middle of the 15th century and this is you know this is really you know this sort of stuff is really nebulous. how do you but that that see I, li- I liked that where there wasn't these yeah i mean it really it's it that's what made it so good i thought that it that it it didn't kind of put these hard dates you know it, it, it really embraced the idea that there is no kind of firm boundaries that people are very flexible and that they can keep all these ideas in their heads simultaneously all the time right <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah. So around the middle of the 15th century, these these ideas are uh, that the meaning of fortuna and 
on the way that fourth tuner is imagined uh, starts to starts to shift and starts to change. So so that means the way that um, Christian Italians are thinking about the future is is starting to shift and and starting to change. Uh, and as I, I argue, I suggest in the book that this 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 these shifts are at least first. Uh, noticeable and traceable in in uh, working file financial thinking. One of one of the first examples seems to be um, the the triumphal entry of um, of Alfonso of, of Aragon in, into Naples after he, after he conquers the, the kingdom of Naples in, in the mid fifteenth century, and, and and all the merchant communities of the city you know sort of participate in this triumph and. One of the earliest examples of this new way of thinking about fulfillment seems to be in the, the Florentine merchant community quote, you know, has this this new image and this this new poem. Um and so and and so the the you know the the image and that the figure of Fortuna um starts to uh starts to refer to the you know the unknowability of the future. It always had sort of referred to the sort of uncertainty of the future. But now it starts to refer to it more in a speculative or, or potentially profitable sense, and that the and we, then you start to see the way that merchants start to to talk about fortuna, uh, that that the moral lesson of fortuna starts to change, and and it's no longer about ignore the worldly stuff because it's no good for you. Just worry about you know what's going to happen in eternity. Um, it starts the moral lesson starts to be not missing out on opportunities. It starts to be you need to recognize opportunities when they're there and and you need to seize a hold of them and and make money make money while you can. So it's this really sort of speculative sense. And and so Fortuna um in the in the imagery on ceases to be by and large, in, in the Mule of Fortune never, never entirely disappears, but Fortuna uh, ceases to be this this imperious woman presiding over a wheel, uh, and then instead becomes this this young, naked, alluring uh, woman who's who's um, moving very fast and and is unpredictable. She's general sort of on a on a sphere, or sometimes a bit wheel, and that's like unpredictability. We don't know which direction she's going to she's going to go uh often then with this this long forelock of hair that it sort of extends in front of her um and so uh you know she's uh, there's a whole lot of sort of gendered aspects to himself yes it's, yeah it's you amazing. and you, you explore that yeah um, yeah you explore that yeah and uh that it, this idea that you know you need to grab a hold of her and seize her um if you're fast enough and if you're smart enough that's what you can do but but you've got to see it coming because the, the lock of hair is in front. So you've got to grab it by the hair um, as as she's coming towards you. If, if, if she passes you by or changes direction, you'll miss out. So that, that that's what the, the moral the moral lesson um, becomes. You know, grab the opportunity when it's there for you. So um, so so the, 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 the you know these these two what had had once been. Uh, that is, these two ideas of the future, uh, Fortuna and Providence, that had once sort of worked in concert. You know, Fortuna just reminded you that you should be thinking about, the, you know, the providential vision of the future. They they start to separate, and and so the future, it's in in one way of thinking about it, that the future is becoming detached from ideas about eternity, that that Christian understanding of 
we know what the future is. Um, and and instead is becomes a sort of a, a window which is is open for for humanity to to seize chances and to make good uh, on uh, opportunities. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and like yeah, it's people have always you know people have always thought about the future, um, but but prior to the the 16th century, European Christians and then Christian Italians always thought about it um, largely as something that was known. I mean, if it was um, in, in, in an obscure in an obscure form. And and so even if they're they're making wills or they're they're you know they're making donations uh, or they're they're drawing up contracts that's it, that's also that's based on an idea that uh, we know what the future is that the rules and and everything is going to be the same tomorrow uh, as it is today but then the idea that starts to change is that well actually maybe the rules can completely change maybe you don't know uh, what tomorrow is is going to be. Um, and that's that's scary, but it's also exciting. And you know, if you're, you know, and the whole notion then around Portuguese becomes if you're smart enough and fast enough, and um, you can you can profit from that. And you know, and sort of the the upheavals of the late fifteenth century, the um, the the European encounter with the Americas, the the, you know, the beginning of the age of encounters, and uh, the the French invasion of the Italian peninsula, and so that the, the, then the sort of subsequent collapse of the the city states this system and all the chaos unleashed there, um, fuels this sense of uncertainty and chaos, and I think really um, helped crystallise new ideas about the future. It's not there's you know it didn't make Italians start thinking about the future differently, but they'd already begun to do that, but it really sort of um, Drove that transformation, helped uh, crystallize, crystallize it, and this is where someone like you know, someone really well known like Machiavelli. I was going to say this. This is your you you do talk about. I feel like we have to talk about Machiavelli. We we're you know we're we're getting close to the end of time here. We have to talk about Machiavelli and Guicciardini, right? I mean, you 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 have the he's uh, the two of them are the the last two thinkers that you go through, right? And you see how fully formed. This new idea of the future is unknown, and not only the future is unknown, but that the future is an is an opportunity, and that you have to be ready for that, and you have to anticipate it, right? Um, so yeah, t- talk about uh, Machiavelli and Guicciardini uh, for a bit. That was I tied up the uh, it's chapter eight, I think, tied up the book really nicely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is where yeah, I mean, and and, and maybe many of the, the listeners are, are familiar with with Machiavelli at least in, in various senses and. And I think this is this is where Machiavelli fits in, and that it, there's there's a current through all of his um, political and historical writing, which he you know he's trying to make sense of a world in which the old rules don't seem to work anymore, and and so this idea of well change can happen, we get, yeah, tomorrow might be completely different today, and, and that's that's why we need to be adaptable and and flexible and mutual. You know that's why you know Port Tudor is is part of the political equation for Machiavelli, but but you also need to be prepared, and we need to we need to understand that um, that things might change suddenly. And that, and I think in terms of the two of them, um, Machiavelli's a little more a little more optimistic by and large. He sort of seems to think that while uh, 
while human beings will often get it wrong, there is that they, they they certainly can potentially seize the opportunity of of this sort of of uncertainty and 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 you know seize the day and make a difference uh, in the future. Whereas Richardini to 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 me, I think seems far more negative. It seems yeah, far more yeah. Yeah, in the way, I, I, I was kind of I, messing up every time. There was just the opportunity. <laughs> they'll, 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 you know, it doesn't matter that that that, that the opportunity is there to be seen. They'll see uh, yes. or, or just just mess it up. Which is that someone will screw it up. That that someone will always mess it up, right? That these kind of you know whoever it's Piero Piero di Lorenzo or so, someone will screw this up, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So and yeah, that's you know. So you get this notion that by the by the early 16th century, yeah, you get you get thinkers like Machiavelli and Guicciardini, um, um, but 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 others as as well who 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 are starting to you know they're they're operating in a world now in which this new notion of future has has crystallised and and they're they're starting to to integrate it into how they think and write about history and politics or also you know sort of the the type of literary works. That they're writing as well. Yeah, uh, I, I it, like I said, it's it, both of ending on them was was a really nice way of doing it, and you really get a sense that this is only that your book is just the the tip of the iceberg. That there's so much more work out there to be done on this topic. That the you, I mean, you, you even acknowledge it. You say, yeah, I'm just going to be cursed. You, you in a, a book that's well over 200 pages long, you say, I'm I'm being cursory here, right? <laughs> and it's uh, yeah, you get a sense that there's so much more. Um, so, you know, if someone was, let's say, starting out in graduate school and they were interested in these kind of questions that you tackle here about probability, the future, risk in the Renaissance, uh, is there any any sources that you can think of that you kind of came across and you said, listen, I just had to table it. I didn't have time. Or, um, And I should say, I'm, I'm going to be honest here that this is partly self-serving. I have an undergraduate student and I gave him your, he's a finance major, and I gave him your book, and he's writing, uh, he's now writing his final paper uh, on the question of probability, kind of looking forward in time, and he's found some sources, but I'm always, it's always good to give him more if I can give him more. Uh, so this is partly selfish that I'm, I'm trying to, to see what else there is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, as you, I think you said uh, right near the beginning, maybe something along the lines. Of, it, it, it is there is a sense that just about you know everybody you can you could pick up by the 16th century you can you can pick up just about any Italian author, and Fortuna will crop up somewhere. And so yeah, like I I had to be cursory, otherwise it's be a bit number of um and and really selective. Um, so I mean, there's work there. But I think there's I think there's probably a lot more work um, that can be done uh, on mercantile correspondence, um, particularly. Uh, I, I mean, again, I had to be selective and, and sort of table and choose choose case studies. I, I think there's there's certainly space for um, much more comprehensive studies of uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, mercantile correspondence out there. I mean. Um, Jürgen uh, Prudeville at, at uh, the University of Antwerp has a has a large project on this at the moment. That that but that there's there's certainly uh, work to be done in that space. And I mean, there's there I yeah, and I, I think there's more work to be done on yeah. If well, tips to think about your students, you know, on um, 
changes in uh, thinking about probability. I think there's there's still kind of a uh, there's some wonderful work on that, but I think there's still kind of a, a gap between between the 16th and the the, the early 18th century. Where, you know, it, it gets left over fairly quickly in in the great work that does that does exist already uh, on this. So there's, there's probably something there. I mean, in terms of stuff that I table, like the coolest thing that I that I, th- I, I didn't actually find it, Richard Goldthwaite. Oh yeah. Oh sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, is uh, and that uh, that didn't make it into the book was a was a book which is actually the the account book for bets on one particular particular papal election compiled by by Martin Merchant and that, yeah. that's the book. But but I've written an article about that. But you know, that will be coming out in a in my. Probably not next year. Maybe maybe the year after in, yeah, in a year or two, you know, as publication <laughs> timelines go. So yeah, there, there, there's certainly more work to be done in several areas. I mean that that transitions perfectly to the last thing I wanted to ask you. That now you know now that uh, the book's done, it sounds like you do have a, a few things still spinning off from it. Uh, but what's the what's the next project? What's what are you know people should be excited about next from you? Um, yeah, so I do actually, unlike, you know, when I, when I finished my, you know, the story of sort of the evolution of this, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Well, I, I mean, Nick, the, there may be is a financial crisis coming up. So, you you know, there's more inspiration here for you if you need it. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, I'm actually moving, moving away from, from financial crises in some ways. And, uh, so I have the, the, the project I'm working on now, um, is, is a micro historical, um, project uh, so it's a very sort of different thing looking at a um at uh, a single florentine family in the, in the first half of of the 16th century um who are uh, who did be, you know that several members of the family are um, you know uh, merchants who are active uh in southern spain and so they have access into the, the very early atlantic world and and the americas and that they're also still trading in that uh, in the Mediterranean as well, and so the project's really about and but they're sorry as well as being merchants, they're also art collectors. Um, and a couple of them are friends with uh, Vasari and and so in intellectual circles there. So the project's about sort of the ways that um, commercial wealth and the sort of an emerging global economy and colonial expansion. Uh, and then the, the sort of the creation of the idea of the Renaissance, in, you know, the Vasarian sort of intellectuals at the Florentine court in the mid-16th century, doing the way that all these things sort of collide and interact uh, in around the middle of the, the 16th century, and looking looking at that through through the experience through the lens of this this single um, mercantile family in, in France. So so that's what's that's what's um, Got me, got me excited and got me working um, at the moment now. Right, that's great. I mean, I'm excited to read to read more about it. It sounds it sounds fabulous. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you know, just just to sort of conclude here, thanks so much. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Nick Baker, who's a associate professor of early modern European and Mediterranean history at Macquarie University, and we've been talking about his book in Fortune's Theater. Financial Risk and uh, and the Future in Renaissance Italy, which is out now. It's a great book. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. 
Hey, Ken, thank you, Marty. It's it's been a pleasure. It's been great to great to talk with you. Uh, it's been great. Uh, you've been listening to the New Books Network in Early Modern History, a channel on the new uh, on the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Mike Martoccio. Thank you so much for listening.